Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Scientists have been studying the climate for 170 years through different frames. Up until really Second World War, when people did look at global warming and did look at the role that carbon dioxide could play, they generally thought it would be a good thing. Over time, scientists and the public began to recognize the risks of too much CO2. I sometimes talk about the history of climate science being less about a, a eureka moment and more about a series of oh no moments. And that oh no gets kind of deeper and more distressing as the late 20th century goes on. Our understanding of atmospheric and climate sciences has evolved over the last century and a half, thanks to the work of many different people. Today, we explore some of that history with Alice Bell, a climate campaigner based in London and author of the book, Our Biggest Experiment, An Epic History of the Climate Crisis. She opens with the story of Eunice Newton Foote, who conducted an experiment on her windowsill 160 years ago. She compared the density and temperature of atmospheric gases in two glass cylinders. One was filled with common air, the other with carbon dioxide. She discovered that CO2 grew hotter and took longer to cool down. Bell talked with Climate One's Ariana Brocious. The progress of science is slow, and one person's ideas often build on those of others. You trace a lot of names in your book, including Eunice Foote, who way back in 1856 concluded that an atmosphere of carbon dioxide would increase the planet's temperature. Is she the person you would say definitively discovered the idea of greenhouse gases? It's not correct, really, to, to pin it on one person. And one of the things, one of the reasons there are so many characters in the book is there are so many people who contributed to our understanding of it. And when we look at the history of science, it's really tempting to try and have one character and to identify one eureka moment. But science doesn't work like that. Science is a team sport. And so we could say, you know, she said that first before similar things that, that were said by other people later. So we could, you know, and I think we should celebrate her more than she has been celebrated because for so many years she was forgotten. But I think to over-celebrate her is actually to do a disservice to so many other people who have worked, you know, continue to work on climate change science and have worked through centuries. You know, the people that she was drawing on, the other people who came after her. And the other thing I think that's really important about the story of Eunice Foot is that was that she was forgotten. So Although that's one of the reasons why we want to celebrate her today, to kind of make up for all of those years where everyone forgot about her. You know, science works by people remembering. You know, it works by people drawing on other people's ideas. And, you know, it was John Tyndall, rightly or wrongly, that people remembered and who whose work people 
drew on. He had advantages that she didn't have. He was a man, he had a job in science, but he also had a lot of disadvantages. And one of the reasons he was remembered was that he was incredibly good at networking and he was very good at sharing his science and you know, writing popular books, doing presentations, talking to people inside and outside of science. And that is that is part of the job of scientists. You know, it's a part of doing science isn't just having a eureka moment on your like Eunice Foot had on her windowsill doing the science on her own. You described the evolving science of humans understanding the atmosphere and the role of carbon dioxide in warming, but you write that for a long time this wasn't concerning to them. Why not? Well, partly because people were just worried about other things, <laughs> and I think that's you know that's still true. Uh, climate change competes with so many other concerns that people have, but particularly I think up until really Second World War, just after that, when people did look at global warming and did look at the role that carbon dioxide could play. They generally thought it would be a good thing. For example, there is this snippet from the news in 1912 that goes viral every now and again. It's, I think, a New Zealand newspaper that talked about how coal could cause global warming. And every now and again, it goes around the internet and people send it to me and go, have you seen this? And I say, yes, I've seen this. <laughs> and it is, it's kind of exciting to see this. 1912, the newspaper saying coal could, could cause global warming. But if you trace that back, it, it, we think it comes from a larger article in Popular Mechanics magazine. And in this article, um, the author goes into a lot of detail about looking at temperature and talking about carbon dioxide. And he says, oh, maybe in the future, people will look back and they'll thank us for burning so much coal because it will be so warm. And I mean, it, it really shows one of the dangers of taking a very limited perspective on climate change from the Northern Hemisphere. You know, people who sat in relatively wealthy Northern parts of Europe and the Americas thought, oh, maybe it being a bit warmer might be nice. You know, in lots of other parts of the world, maybe not. So I think it's, it's an example of why we need to look at these things in detail, but also one of the reasons why we need more diverse set of perspectives on this issue. Yeah, the uh, bias of the global North, even way back then. So in 1815, Indonesian volcano Mount Tambora exploded. Can you tell us what happened next? So there was this very, very large volcanic eruption, uh, which devastated uh, islands in Indonesia. Uh, lots of people were killed, the homes were destroyed, and it also created a huge amount of ash. So for, for miles and miles around, areas were just completely covered in ash. So, you know, they'd be walking through piles of stuff. And there was so much ash that, that went up into the atmosphere. Um, it seems as if it circulated around the whole globe for, for several years afterwards, and particularly exacerbated some very poor weather conditions in Europe for several years after that. And so the story goes, this is one of the reasons why it was a really, really grim summer, the year that Mary Shelley ended up going on holiday in Switzerland, hiding from the rain, telling ghost stories with her friends and wrote Frankenstein, uh, which is a beautiful story. I mean, I think you should be careful of uh, looking back on this and saying, ah, oh, you know, a volcanic explosion helped us create Frankenstein. Because also there are a lot of other problems that happened around that. The series of years where there was bad weather in Europe, there were famine, all sorts of political unrest probably off the back of it. And I think historians would look at it and go, well, it wasn't just the weather that was causing this. Disasters aren't just natural. If people were starving, it was because of inequality of food access, uh, where there was war and uh, all sorts of other forms of social unrest. These had other political human inputs. So how did that shape the thinking around ice ages? So it was uh, one of several events that had made people kind of think about, well, the weather changes and it had been colder in the past uh, and 
they were kind of worried that it might get colder in the future. This is one of the reasons why for so long in the 19th and early 20th century, when people talked about global warming, they thought it was a good thing because they were scared that we'd have another ice age. Uh, People could see the formation of of glaciers and the fact that uh, there were sort of, there were marks on on bits of rock that they could trace back and think, well, this is probably to do with the movement of ice and the fact that there must have been more ice at some point, it must have been colder. Uh, And they were trying to think, you know, what is it that, could have been different in the world that meant it was colder. And this is what led to ideas of what we now understand as the greenhouse effect. It wouldn't have been called that then, but this sort of idea of an insulating blanket of gases around the earth and led to people like Eunice Foote wondering, okay, well, what is the chemical makeup of this insulating uh, blanket of gases? And what if we changed it? So on a similar note in this kind of thinking about the change in the weather or or atmosphere, you point to work by Mark Maslin and Simon Lewis about a noticeable dip in atmospheric carbon around 1600. What do you think triggered that dip and what might have been the result of that? They argue that it could well have been to do with um, colonization of North America. When Europeans came over, they killed a lot of Native Americans, and they that meant that, I mean, to put it bluntly, the dead don't farm. And so a huge amount of foliage grew back. But that was only temporarily, uh, because then uh, the Europeans got to farming and they cleared the land. But that temporary growback was enough to, to breathe in a huge amount of carbon dioxide and create this dip in the record. And it's the sort of thing that people like Mark and Simon can find because they have access to these incredible modern scientific techniques where we drill deep, deep into ice in the Arctic and unravel bubbles of, of, of atmospheric gases, you know, from old atmospheres from, from back then, you know, the atmosphere of, you know, 1585 or something has been trapped in a little bubble of, of ice deep in the Arctic. And they can, they can do run chemical analysis of that. But they also look back and think, well, We also seem to have a record of it being quite cold around that time. So there's this story of the the volcano and how that affected weather, particularly in Europe in the early 19th century. But there's what's called the Little Ice Age, which it wasn't a true ice age. It wasn't that cold, but it was colder in quite a few parts of the world for several centuries from from around the kind of era of Shakespeare up until kind of mid-19th century era of Dickens. And there are lots of different explanations for that, volcanoes being one. But one explanation is is possibly that one of the contributing factors to, to this was the changes in in just composition of land in North America due to colonization. And we, we often talk about how colonization drives climate change today. And it's it's really interesting to think about how people were having you know, political movements like that were having an impact on climates way back then as well. Yeah, that's a really fascinating anecdote. Obviously quite tragic. Oh, yeah. Early in the book, you write that the railways like steamships quickly became key technologies of colonialism in the U.S. And a lot of our exploitation of natural resources that have led to the climate crisis have been built on racist structures, unjust labor. And I'm wondering if what potential you see for us to change that as we transition into a new energy economy. Climate campaigners often talk about how colonialism and the climate crisis are one and the same thing. And you can see that played out today in today's politics. And I kind of went into it being kind of curious to see how much that held up historically. It really does play up historically. Uh, It's incredible how often the two go hand in hand. It's partly just to do with who was in power. And so who would take advantage of the new power that this technology gave us? So in India, 
Britain loves to say, oh, we built the railways. Like, you built them in very specific places that would allow your trade. And one of the first things you did was you put a lot of your military on it to put down a rebellion. You know, it's the people in power ha- were given more power because of, of the way that they could use uh, fossil fuels and, and technologies around them. And so I think from that, we think, well, technology is power. It gives you a lot of power and it can be a power for good. So, and I think another part of that is ownership. And it's really important as we think about how we have to do a lot of technological change very, very quickly in order to tackle the climate crisis. I think it's vital that we remember those issues of ownership uh, and power going forward and think about who is this going to give power to, who is in control of it, and how can we do that better? Because we could end up creating whole new problems for ourselves. We might tackle the climate crisis at least as much as we can in 2022, but we're going to be living uh, you know, for the next few decades, dealing with the impacts of climate change, as well as having to transform our lives to stop it from getting too much worse. Uh, and to be having to live with those impacts whilst potentially also increasing inequalities by how we do it. So I, to give a sort of concrete example, it's about thinking about not just building loads of solar farms and wind farms, but thinking about who owns them. A really good example in uh, both Canada and the USA is when you have community solar projects that are owned by indigenous communities, uh, First Nations. This land has previously been taken from us and put oil uh, pipes through it. Well, we are reclaiming this land and we are taking control and we are building our own energy system. Those sorts of projects which think about putting the new powers that will come to people with the new technologies in the hands of a greater diversity of people. Uh, and maybe arguably also going back to people who had power taken away from them, I think is an important thing for us to keep in mind. So we don't just narrowly tackle the climate crisis, but also with that, think about lots of other political problems around it. So at what point did scientists realize that it was more likely and probably more harmful or that we should be more concerned about warming rather than another ice age? I think people started to appreciate that it was definitely warming in the in the 20th century. So by the time you get to the mid-1930s and you have a scientist called Guy Callender kind of dig up the ideas that by that point kind of they'd sort of bubbled up at the end of the 19th century, this idea of carbon dioxide causing global warming as a theory, and they'd been put away. And Guy Callender picked them back up again in the 1930s and looked at them in more detail. And he was largely laughed out of the room by the scientists at the time. People thought it was a ridiculous theory, but everyone agreed that the, the world was warming. They just didn't think it was caused by carbon dioxide. And there were all sorts of different theories, whether it might be temporary, what it was, whether it was good, was it bad, they weren't really sure. And there was just there was definitely a sense that it was warming. You know, people were measuring uh, glaciers and they could see the melting. They had by then, by the you know mid-20th century, many, many decades of temperature data research, you know, weather research had been kept at places like, particularly places like the Smithsonian. And it was established that it was warming. It wasn't really until after World War II when there was a slightly different scientific context. There was more money for science, particularly in America. There were new techniques. There were things like computers to crunch your numbers. People came back to this work by Guy Callender in the 30s and went, mm, I think carbon dioxide really might be a thing. And by then, there'd been a huge expansion of carbon dioxide emissions. You know, when people like Eunice Foote were looking at it in the 1850s, it was quite small. When it was sort of bubbling up again as an idea in the the early 20th century, it had ramped up quite a lot by then. There were a lot more carbon emissions and there was some discernible temperature change. But then again, by 1950, it had gone even further and people were like, oh, wow. They were kind of a little bit more cautious. But I think the kind of really 
oh dear moments didn't really develop until kind of later in the 50s and the early 60s. I sometimes talk about the history of climate science being less about a, a eureka moment and more about a series of oh no moments. And that oh no gets kind of deeper and more distressing as the late 20th century goes on. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the history of climate science. Coming up, our history of avoiding the root causes of climate disruption. Coal is incredibly obviously polluting, and yet people put up with it. My mum has these memories of living in London in the 1950s, where there was still a lot of coal smoke and smog, you know, the London smog. And she walked down the street one day past her mother, and they didn't recognize each other because it was so thick. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. We're talking with the climate campaigner and author Alice Bell about the history of climate science. Last fall, a Yale poll found that for the first time, a majority of Americans say they are personally experiencing climate disruption. But for decades, scientists have been predicting impacts would hit everyone, everywhere. Let's return to the conversation between Ariana Brocious and Alice Bell. It's sometimes thought that this warning, this worry about climate change was an academic issue in the 50s, and then the public didn't really know about it until maybe the 70s or 80s. But actually, it became a matter of public policy and of popular culture quite early on. So Roger Revelle is a scientist who's really, really key. 100 years after Eunice Furtz, she worked in 1856. He worked in 1956. He really put a, a load of really important data together working in his lab in California. And he not only did some important research, but he was very good at getting science funding and very good at connecting science to science policy. And he went and briefed Congress on this in 1956. So it was that early that American politicians were warned about this. At the same time, there's a TV show, a big mainstream, really beautiful, very expensively produced cartoon comedy, sort of live action film merged with cartoons, beautiful science show produced by, um, you know, the director who made um, It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra. Uh, and this is on mainstream American television in the late 50s talking about, you know, if we burn lots of carbon dioxide, then it'll get warmer. We actually have a clip from that Frank Capra show. I think this is the one you're referencing called The Unchanged Goddess. And this clip is from 1958. So we can play that here and then maybe respond to it. Even now, man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. Due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than six billion tons of carbon dioxide, which helps air absorb heat from the sun, our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer. This is bad? Well, it's been calculated a few degrees rise in the Earth's temperature would melt the polar ice caps. And if this happens, an inland sea would fill a good portion of the Mississippi Valley. Tourists in glass-bottomed boats would be viewing the drowned towers of Miami through 150 feet of tropical water. Foreign weather, we're not only dealing with forces of a far greater variety than even the atomic physicist encounters, 
but with life itself. So there's dramatic footage there of glaciers, icebergs kind of crumbling in the background. That's one of the things you hear. But I'm wondering what your take was on this when you heard it or saw it for the first time. I mean, it was sort of, I was sort of like, wow. <laughs> it was worth watching in the context of the whole show. But back then, there was still a lot to play for. And I think when they were talking about it, the way in which it was abstract wasn't that it was a, a scientific, esoteric issue and they were talking about chemicals and things that people didn't understand. It was abstract because it was something in the future. And I think that was because they genuinely believed that science and technology would sort it, that the politicians would act. Um, you know, there's this really hopeful message at the end of this um Frank Capra show, it's just sort of like, gee whiz, these great scientists will work it out. And you really believe it. Um, uh, and I think that Roger Ravel, throughout his career, I mean, he got some criticism for actually, and just before he died in the early 90s, about sort of chiming what some people felt were too positive a note. And it got twisted by climate skeptics to say, oh, look, this isn't a problem. But I mean, it was, he said these things because he genuinely believed that we still had time to act and we could act. And he didn't want everyone to think it's all over. And I, I, as my day job is as a climate campaigner. And I think that too. And I constantly worry, am I either scaring people too much or not enough? <laughs> you know, it, it's a difficult balance uh, to get right. And so this continued. And I think it it maybe stuck as a kind of background thing, as something people talked about but didn't really worry about because they thought, oh, there's still time to sort it. And then it got to kind of the mid-80s and people went, oh, whoops, we're really not sorting it. And that's the point where you start to, to get a bit more of the, you know, it's not so much, oh dear, it's more uh, expletives start to be used at that point and people start to get, to get genuinely scared. Speaking to this sort of when people knew or when scientists knew, you cite a really, to me, fascinating exchange of letters in Scientific American. This is around the start of the 20th century. And there were quotes, are we using our sky as a giant slag heap? The magazine's readers wondered, the air filled with carbon dioxide just as coal tar had clogged up the rivers. Can we rely on the oceans and plants to breathe it in, clearing up the mess? Was it time to start a movement for the conservation of the atmosphere? I just find this interesting that this was happening. These were letters, you know, a century ago. So how much did the public understand and and comprehend or worry about these changes um, even then? So I think definitely people were worrying about it in the 20th century. And I think there was a sense that it was getting warmer and people, it was, you know, journalists cover these things because they know it's going to resonate with their readers. That's why it gets popular coverage. And it was... You know, it was, it was very, it was quite mainstream to have what we might now think of as environmentalist thought. It grew kind of in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And so I think it's understandable what people were like, well, maybe we need to start thinking about this. There have been decades of inaction on coal smoke. I mean, one of the really remarkable things about the rise of use of fossil fuels is that it started with coal, and coal is incredibly obviously polluting. Um, like you don't need to know about climate change to, to, to see that coal is polluting, and yet people put up with it. You know, the Victorians were obsessed with cleanliness, and yet they were fine with a bit of coal soot. My mum has these memories of living in London in the 1950s where there was still a lot of coal smoke and smog, you know, the London smog. And she walked down the street one day past her mother and they didn't recognize each other because it was so thick. And you have these stories of these pea super smogs in London. Look, pollution was very, very big. There's lots of, uh, of cities around the world where pollution was just like literally in your face and that you couldn't see past the end of your nose. <laughs> and people did nothing about it. But I think, you know, by the time it got to kind of the early 20th century, you did start to see some people taking action on it. One really interesting thing I read was um, how there'd been a, a coal strike in, I think, 
Pennsylvania, but whatever it meant had meant that New Yorkers had a different type of coal than they usually had. They had a much sootier type of coal than they usually had. And suddenly New Yorkers had to deal with the kind of pollution that they normally didn't have to deal with because their coal was cleaner than some of the other types of coal. And that suddenly got people going, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> and sort of noticing the pollution and wanting to take action on it. Uh, and people moving towards oil when it was more of an option to move away from coal. So there had been a kind of awareness of that, that I think was, was also building. But a sense of a concern about global warming, I don't think really hit until the 70s or 80s. Climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, when she was on Climate One, talked about how people perceive climate threats as being distant in space, happening over there, but not here. Also distant in time, happening in the future, but not right now. And distant in relevance, happening to people, you know, those people who care about that, but not me. How do we overcome that inherent human psychology? It is hard. And it's it's one of the things I learned from reading about the, the the history of smog and air pollution is that even when it is really close to you, you sort of put this psychological barrier up. So we, we often talk about, I mean, particularly living in the UK, we don't have that many climate impacts, you know, uh, and there are parts of the US where people are able to, you know, by coincidence of where they are geographically or by having access to enough financial resources, you can insulate yourself from climate impacts. But there are lots of people who have climate impacts happening to them. You know, they'll be like sitting there going, it's very hot, I'm in pain. Or, you know, might have even been displaced from the, you know, particularly people who've had really disastrous things happen to them. They're not necessarily going to be thinking about climate change when that happens. You know, like they've got other things to worry about. And it, you know, it becomes a way of psychological well-being, I think, sometimes that we we avoid thinking about it. So it's a, it's a really difficult problem because it's not just that, you know, because sometimes climate campaigners say, oh, well, you know, when, when it starts to hit, maybe people will take action. Well, I think actually they won't. You know, people don't make the best decisions when they're distressed. And um, also we can see it. Lots of us can see it happening quite obviously in front of our eyes and we're still not acting. So I think for me, one of the most powerful things to do is give people a relationship to the science and to the technology and an ownership of the science technology. And I think really, it's really powerful when we can do citizen science projects, which can give people a role in being part of making that science. So it doesn't just seem like this abstract thing that someone's told you. It's something you were part of, of being involved in. And the same with the technology. And that's one of the reasons why I think the issue of ownership is so important for how we do the technological changes, because it's also about giving people a stake in that low carbon future. So if you uh, find, you know, living in all sorts of different parts of the world and someone comes over and just like builds a load of, of solar farms or wind farms in, in your area and you can't see the the profits from that going to your local area, it's just being extracted and going somewhere else. Understandably, you might be quite angry about that. You feel a distance for it. You say, this isn't for me. This is just some green rubbish that someone's doing. If you're invited to be part of it, maybe they're sharing, you know, inviting the local community to think about being involved about how are you going to build this solar farm? Where are you going to build it? Or it could be as simple as that you can see the jobs going to your friends and families. You feel like you've got a stake. It's part of your place. It's part of your, your home. And the work I do in my day job as a climate campaigner is, is primarily trying to think about ways in which we can give people an, a way of being involved in all the new technological changes that will have to happen because of climate action. And I really do, I do that work because I really believe that that's one of the ways that we can make it less distance. Uh, it makes it just part of your everyday life. So it's not an abstract thing someone's telling, nagging you, you should do. It's something you're already doing and that you have joy in and you see the value of. There are so many characters and surprising anecdotes in your book. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite that you like to tell, you know, maybe at a dinner party or um, that just sort of exemplifies something from your research. 
it's a woman called Ida Tarbell, who was a investigative journalist in the US at the beginning of the 20th century, who totally brought down Rockefeller. She was great. She was tenacious. She was born in the same decade in the same state as the oil industry. And her family had worked in the oil industry and had seen Rockefeller build the American oil industry and how corrupt, well, how she felt he was very corrupt. And she's like, right, I'm, gonna, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm going to take him down. <laughs> and she collected all these stories. And loads of people warned her off, said, don't do it. You can't fight Rockefeller. You'll lose. And she was like, no, I'm going to do it. And um, she started publishing in her magazine and it was a sensation and it inspired more people to send their stories to her. And so the story ran and ran and ran. It's a good example of how people could be connected to it. So that it really builds steam because it sort of crowdsourced all these stories from people and there's more and more and more of them. And she published a book and it really con contributed to lots of other people already also just not liking the way that Rockefeller had too much power. He had they argued he had a monopoly in the oil industry and led to the breakup of Standard Oil. And that is how we have Chevron and Exxon and Mobil, uh, because they were all creations of what had been Standard Oil and were split up into to these and a few other companies. Now, the moral of that story is, though, is yes, a tenacious investigative journalist, a woman journalist at the beginning of the 20th century brought down Rockefeller, and that's great. But <laughs> uh, when they, just, they had to take Standard Oil apart, uh, actually, Exxon and Mobil and, and Chevron, they ended up being a lot bigger <laughs> than the original, you know, the sum of their parts is much bigger than the original Standard Oil. So we can take down big oil because we've done it before, but we should be, we should be wary of what might emerge from however we do, whatever comes next. That's a great anecdote. Um, so another running theme throughout your book is this idea of sort of technological advances, starting from, you know, mining the seas for whales and using that whale oil as a fuel um, to others like the steamboat. So I'm wondering how those stories influenced your thinking about our success or failures in the technological space. What what makes one technology take off and another, you know, like petrol, like whale oil fall away? I definitely feel that going back to all these energy history, energy technology stories really pushed a point, which I've kind of known <laughs> for as long as I've studied history of technology, but really pushed the point that a lot of it's accidental and a lot of it's down to good PR. So there are some things like with whales, uh, there was so much hunting of whales, uh, particularly around North America um, in kind of end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, that the populations plummeted massively. And there, there'd already been loads of whales that had been killed around Europe. You know, there's these stories of whalers that had, had killed so many whales around Europe, they had to keep going further and further away. And that meant it was more expensive. And so there's sort of environmental impacts, which can change how we use technologies. And that, you know, the fact that whale oil was getting more expensive meant that it was maybe easier for other technologies like kerosene to come through. Um, but it was also really good marketing, you know, like, and it was coincidence. You know, there were so many options for particularly transport technology um, before World War One. And there are loads of there are loads of things like electrified lorries. So one of the things I work on in my day job is thinking about how we could electrify freight. Moving goods around the, the land is really expensive to do and it takes a lot of takes a lot of energy. It's quite difficult to have a, a battery for an electric truck. Um, but you could have a system for electrified freight where they work on rails a little bit like a tram or something. And that was being developed in the 1910s. And people thought that the future of freight might well be electrified. And then World War One came along and those projects sort of fell by the wayside. And by the end of World War One, there'd been a huge acceleration in oil-based transport because, you know, 
we went into World War One with people playing around with planes, and they came out of World War One with really advanced technologies in terms of, of planes. And so, in the post, in the interwar, and then I guess throughout the 20th century, really, we've seen more and more improvement in, in plane technologies on, a, on an oil route. Same thing: the oil-based car, trucks. These are partly just coincidence. Um, you also see things like there's a wonderful case where it's classic. Anyone's ever studied history of technology, you've probably read the story of how the refrigerator got its hum, which is how we ended up with electric fridges rather than gas ones. And that is partly to do with investment in R&D. People, electric companies have more money to invest in making really good fridges, but it's also because they invested in PR. Like They spent an absolute fortune. And this, I think, is a really important lesson for people today in the green movement, because so many of us sit there and go, well, we've got the best technology. And everyone likes our technology. I've done a lot of work on wind and solar, and you look at the approval ratings for wind and solar in the UK, and the British public love them, but the government can cut support for them. We're not building it because they can get away with it because they love the technology, but they don't love it enough <laughs> to, to hold their government accountable to build more of it. And there isn't really a way that we can kind of have a relationship with it in the way that we can have a relationship with a phone or a fridge or consumer technology. Huge amounts of money have gone into selling us uh, you know, laptops and phones, <laughs> and once upon a time, an electric fridge rather than a gas fridge. But we haven't really thought about kind of selling green technology. You don't, you do see it with electric cars. Um, and I think that's a real lesson that people should take as we think about the future is being careful about how we make good decisions, not just letting things accidentally happen, but also thinking about how we talk to the public about these technologies. Yeah. I mean, knowing what you do, having done this, you know, very deep history of all these different technologies. Do you have hope about uh, our human ingenuity and that we will, um, you know, we, we often say we have the tools we need now to fight the climate crisis, but they're just not being deployed at scale or maybe in the right places. Do you think we'll be able to get ourselves out of it? I often say that one of the really hard things about being a climate campaigner is that you can't win because you've, in a way, you've already lost. Because it's not like fighting for an end to nuclear weapons. You can think, well, one day we could get rid of them. But we're already stuck with quite a lot of climate change. You know, we were already stuck with quite a lot of climate change when all of us were born, and it's getting worse. We already have enough warming that it's causing devastation uh, for for many people around the world, and we're locked into a lot more. But that doesn't mean it's all over, because <laughs> I guess one of the good things about climate change is it isn't uh, a win or lose issue. It kind of it happens by degree, it happens bit by bit, and there is still. There is still so much of the world that we can save. And that's the thing that gets me up in the morning and means that I have hope. And I did, writing the book, going into it, I thought this is going to be really depressing because I'm just going to read a lot of stories about people doing terrible things like opening the earth open and drilling for oil and being really corrupt and not taking action on climate change. And it was, there were points while writing it or researching it where I, I did find it really depressing. And I kind of surprised myself that by the end of it, when I came to write the conclusion, I actually ended up cheering myself up and thinking, oh, actually, one of the things that I feel that I ended up finding, as well as lots of stories of people doing terrible things, was people doing wonderful things. I'm like, actually, we've been left with a lot of opportunities. We know what is causing it. We're armed with you know, centuries of science. And that is that is a good thing. And so... I don't feel hopeful or happy because I'm a climate campaigner. And so my default setting is to be quite miserable. But that doesn't mean that I feel like it's all over because it really, really isn't. We have been left a lot of opportunities and we still have got some time to seize them. And I think that if anything, tracing back the history really reminded me of that. Alice Bell is a climate campaigner and author of Our Biggest Experiment, An Epic History of the Climate Crisis. Alice, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate One. Thank you. Coming up, a journalist and scientist reflect on how well the movie Don't Look Up 
matches our climate reality. There's no adapting to the impacts of a comet. Everyone's smashed to smithereens. Inequality doesn't exist. It's beautiful, right? In the real world, we're already dealing with climate change and we need to adapt. But the good news of that is that we have agency. That's up next when Climate One continues. The climate change allegory Don't Look Up was released during the holidays and quickly became one of Netflix's top viewed films. It follows two climate scientists desperately trying to get the U.S. government to respond to an Earth-destroying comet and the way the media, society, and politicians handle the threat. The movie was recently nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. I invited environmental journalist Mira Subramanian and climate scientist Katerina Gonzalez to reflect on the movie. Here's Gonzalez. Like with most things, I laughed and then I growled and then I laughed. But most viscerally, it was so ridiculous, yet not ridiculous at all, that I had to laugh so that I wouldn't cry. So I quite enjoyed getting to have those belly laughs for sure. Good. Well, as someone in this field, it's anytime you can laugh, that's a good thing. Mira Supermanian, how did you respond to Don't Look Up? So much like Katerina, it was definitely um, a lot of laughing and uh, interspersed with the with the crying and howling. Um, <laughs> I was just amazed at how many aspects of uh, working on climate issues this movie addressed that I wasn't really expecting. You know, I thought it was really, I knew it was about climate, but then the whole confusing ball of wax was in there. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it. Right. I got it. Got the, the media, gender, science, facts, politics, ego, all sorts of it's all in there. Let's hear a bit of an early scene when they go into brief the U.S. president, played by Meryl Streep. Uh, Madam President, uh, approximately 36 hours ago, um, Ph.D. candidate Kate DiBiaschi here d- discovered a very large comet. Oh, for you. Uh, a comet between five to ten kilometers across that we estimate came from the uh from the from the Oort cloud. Wow. Which is the outermost part of the of the solar system. And um and using Gauss's method of orbital determination and the average astrometric uncertainty of 0.04 arc seconds. We we then asked Whoa, 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 what the hell is so what? Bored. Just tell us what, what it is. This, this what? Seriously stop. <laughs> So, Mira Subramanian, <laughs> lots of facts there. What what does that bring up for you? The the, the long long story about science communication. Um, you know, they really just took it to the to the hilt with Dr. Mindy's character of, um, you know, for so long around climate, which is something we have known about for decades and decades. There was a good stint where scientists were just like, we just need to convey the information and then everybody will get upset and act. And so that scene right there with Dr. Mindy all tied up in a knot, <laughs> trying, to, trying to just get it clear, but also getting mired in all the scientific details that he knows and, you know, President Orlean's son, that character of just being, I'm so bored, <laughs> like just captured how a lot of people do kind of have this gut reaction to 
scientific information that not many people are versed in. And so um, it just captured that whole that whole scene of like, how do you cut to the chase? How do you find the soundbite that will reach through to the public? Right. And Katerina Gonzalez, you've worked on communicating on an emotional level, not just dispensing facts, uh, which clearly you know, the character there was speaking kind of from his head about facts. So how did that strike you as someone who tries to communicate science on a different level? Totally. Well, first of all, I really feel for Dr. Mindy because you feel how nervous he is there. He's portraying an enormous amount of nerves and the magnitude of the situation there. And as a scientist, you know, we we all are born human. We all are born with hearts and bodies. But then somewhere along the way, we kind of get shunted into this mind centered aspect and so I'm just imagining Dr. Mindy being like, I don't want to be criticized. Like, I don't want my committee or my colleagues to think that I'm wrong. But in that he's trying to not be wrong, but the fear is the only thing coming out and none of it is relevant. And even as a scientist, I feel with the audience of like, dude, just please get to the point. So what if you were in the uh, Oval Office speaking to President Meryl Streep, what would you have said? What should have Dr. Mindy have done differently? Well, I think, yes, he, he could have for sure prepared on what the call to action was first and work backwards. I think distilling is a big part of science communication. What is the point? Why is this bad? But also... What are the extraneous details that are for different audiences rather than just the Oval Office? It's such an absurd situation, but it really highlights the importance of audience and science communication. I promise I won't give away too much, but as Randall and Kate try to launch a media tour to get the world to pay attention, the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office advises Randall, quote, just tell the story, no math. And Randall protests, but it's all math. So Mira Subramanian, how have you learned to balance the need to present data and back it up with also telling a relatable story? Yeah, I... I say this a lot, but you have to start with the story because that's how humans think and um, absorb information in our world and figure out what to do with it and where to put that information. And so the story kind of does have to come first and you got to have all those facts ready to back it up. But just like Katerina said, it has to be targeted to the audiences that's going to be receiving it and accommodated such so that you know, someone can speak as perfectly to a, an audience of scientists as they can to a bunch of people who are worried about a storm coming um, to their backyard and what that might mean for them if they're a farmer or a rancher. So you have to be able to tailor the story and accept that it doesn't diminish the, the depth of knowledge that's behind that story. Yeah. Well, humans evolved, right? Telling stories, religion is stories. There's all sorts of examples, <laughs> evolutionary and contemporarily, about how uh, stories are so important. I want to play another clip and get your reaction on the other side. This is Dr. Mindy and Kate going on a morning talk show to try to get the word out, but the hosts brush off the bad news with lighthearted jokes. It would damage the, the entire planet, not just a house. No. The entire planet. Okay, well, as it's damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey? It's my ex-wife's house. I need it to be hit. I'm sorry. Are we, uh, are we not being clear? 
we're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. okay. Um, well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right, it helps the medicine go down. And speaking of medicine, tomorrow we've got a two-part- Well, maybe the destruction of the entire planet isn't supposed to be fun. Maybe it's supposed to be terrifying. So Katarina Gonzalez, she goes there to that kind of emotional place that the male character didn't. What's your thought there on the balance between light and dark? Yeah, no, this really struck with me, I think, especially as in this work, we're delivering bad news a lot of the time, and only some of us are allowed to respond emotionally. So gender plays into this race plays into this. And I really resonated with the whole sentiment that it's not supposed to be good news. It's not, fundamentally, this is bad news. We aren't supposed to be having fun. We aren't supposed to be joking lightheartedly. And at the same time, the media is in this such a different headspace right now too. And so it's really difficult to bridge that. It's like a lot of cross wires going on. And at the same time, Kate clearly is processing her emotions of this impending disaster in real time, where she's doing it in a quite public manner. And that's not being welcomed in this in this morning show. So I thought that was interesting to watch those that character development between Dr. Mindy and Kate as it went on because then eventually Dr. Mindy gets upset and hugely emotional. And what he does with his emotions is somehow more okay. It's somehow more, less hysterical. And we all know this, but it's so, it was, it was really on point to watch that unfold. Um, but just also really unfortunate. Mira, you traveled around the country listening to people with diverse and often skeptical views on climate. As a person who listens for a living, what did you think about how people listened in the movie? There's been a lot talked about the lines and what was said. How about the listening? I think that just gets to the the heart of it is that there's not much listening going on. Every, um, I mean, I loved how they portrayed every big kind of news flash that happens, the explosion of social media, and everybody's got their thing to say, to add to the conversation. Is the Super Bowl going to be canceled? <laughs> All these, um, everybody's got something to say, and very, very few people are listening. And that same scene that Katarina was just talking about, which also really, really struck me, I'm glad you talked, asked her about it first, because I might have just choked up again <laughs> around that scene, because it was just so powerful. But um, Dr. Mindy says, you know, sometimes we need to just be able to say things to one another. We need to hear things. And I thought that that last line, we need to hear things, was so integral to what this movie was trying to portray. Right. Yeah. Throughout the movie, there's a constant undercurrent of sexism directed from numerous fronts at, at Kate, to the Jennifer Lawrence character who discovered the threat. As much as Leonardo DiCaprio's character tries to elevate her voice, she's continually undercut, even by other powerful women, as in a short clip just after she tries to get the morning news host to take her seriously. 
Okay. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm. not so much. Not so much. Not so much. Katerina, you went to school in a very male-dominant uh, school of minds in Colorado. You've surely encountered a lot of this. What was your reaction to how Kate gets treated? I really resonated with the yelling lady phrase. So I'm Latina, and I am pretty in touch with a lot of my emotions and also particularly anger when it comes to the climate crisis and other social issues. And I was like, laugh cried at this because so many times in these institutions that are male dominated, specifically white male dominated, that has a whole ideology of how women should be and behave and speak. It just takes me back to like, oh no, like, please stop complaining. Please stop yelling. You're not welcome here anymore. That, yeah, I just the woman's being, yeah, the woman is being emotional. Yeah, emotional yeah. is a, yeah. Like she's not being quiet or polite. Um, she's yelling, like that is not welcome. She's trying to get us to exert our efforts in some way. Like that's weird. Like that's uncomfortable. And so this is the dominant narrative and, and went in communication. And, and as we know, Black women and Indigenous women are going to bear the brunt of those biases and racisms and sexisms because of intersectionality. So I was just like, oh my goodness, this is getting at it. And the way that Dr. Mendy just sort of sat there was really expected, I guess. But disappointing. Um, as far as an ally, he was trying to be supportive, but throughout, he also is balancing the need for his voice to get through as well. So he was a imperfect ally. He was there, but could have been there more for her. There could have been more solidarity for sure. And by the time, again, when he allows himself to be upset publicly, it's, it's a bit too late in the film. And so um, I think this just goes back to whose voice is centered. What is the role of particularly men's emotions? Um, because a lot of time men get to share their upsetness about things. But to what end? Is that towards equity and solving the problem? Or is that towards just live processing of not being in control and in power? Well, Mira, are there ever times you want to be the yelling lady that you're so frustrated with not being heard or so frustrated with uh, what you're learning on climate, not getting through? Are there times you want to be a yelling lady? And is there power in that? Yeah, I think there, I mean, I think there is power in that. I think it takes, I mean, just like climate action, it takes all types and all, all efforts, whether that's being out on front lines protesting to working on policy to working on technology to working on community building to being a scientist to being an artist being a filmmaker right there's all these different ways to be engaged in the fight for climate action and likewise there's different ways to tell these stories and we need people out there screaming men and women and then we also need other people being quieter and really taking into consideration who they're talking to and trying to like change minds in other ways i mean i think that there's there's just no wrong answer with this issue and 
the best thing to do is to do what feels right for you. In the movie, Peter Isherwell, a kind of a Peter Thiel, Elon Musk mashup played by Mark Rylance, convinces the president that there are trillions of dollars to be made from the minerals in the comet heading toward Earth. In the real world, how much do you fear that you know capitalist impulses will derail efforts to mitigate climate change? I mean, I think that's a very real because um, the reason why we're in the situation is because of these political and economic systems that are so entrenched in how the planet operates right now. And the opening up of the Arctic is a really positive thing for certain countries. Russia, for example, like there's, there's more opportunities to be had and um, agriculture changes and who the players are in terms of who gets to grow the food on this planet. All of those things change. And I think those are very, very real problems when it comes to this. And so just pure human greed is is part of it. And then how you can take that storyline and twist it to where it can translate to jobs and to, um, you know, these other things that supposedly are beneficial for human communities, but often come at great cost to those same human communities as well as the environment. Yeah, sure. And jobs are a good thing. Uh, Katerina, you were nodding your head there. Yeah, well, I I 100% agree with Mira as she was talking about these economic systems and social systems that really are the root cause of climate change. Greed and overconsumption, those are the root causes of how we got here. And that is one of the aspects of the film that doesn't portray it like quite one-to-one mapping on. The comet is a random anomaly. It's a blip. It's an it's a act of nature. And if the comet is destroyed, everything goes back to normal and everything's okay. But in reality, we are in climate change right now because the status quo is altering our whole climate system and it's causing immense human suffering now. And so there is no technocratic fix to get rid of the comet slash climate change in one day and everything's okay because marginalized communities across the globe have been dealing with environmental change that before climate change was in existence. Black and brown communities have been seeing their neighborhoods become gentrified And we have to look at the root cause of like, well, why is this? What are the systems in place? And so I think when it comes to the like crux of the film of like what to do now, it's really a question of how do we radically transform society rather than how do we respond to this disaster that's going to happen in one day because the disaster is already happening. So as we uh, as we wrap up here, I'm curious, you know, with both of you, how has the movie affected the conversations you've had with your peers and how has it affected you generally? I mean, I definitely felt it as catharsis. I mean, it came out right over the holidays. So my two uh, stepdaughters were home in their 20s and I was like, I really want to see this movie, right? It's coming out. <laughs> Do you want to watch it or is that just more climate doom than a bringing into the house on a regular basis? And they um, were very eager to see it and we watched it like right away. Um, and just the fact this is the, apparently the second highest Netflix film of, of their streaming service ever. So this touched on something 
There are um, psychologists now that are focusing on eco-grief to process this because this is a very um, existential question that people are grappling with. And as it becomes more and more real each year, there's resources now for people to go and find. I'm people who've been working on this in the space for a long time. We just had each other. And so this movie was a little bit of catharsis of being like, oh my gosh, <laughs> somebody actually gets what, what you know, whether you're a journalist or a, a scientist or an activist thinking about these things all the time. Um, it can be really, really hard. You don't know how much to even be sharing with your your family and friends, you know, you, you bring it up, but you're doing that kind of dance that, that they talked about in the movie of trying to keep things light by also pointing out that, <laughs> that things are not so bright and are looking like they're going to get darker and darker if we don't do something now. So um, it's, it's a lot of walking that line, but I, I think just furthering the conversations has been really makes that worth it it's not all or nothing, which is, which is how it was portrayed in the movie. It's, it's not that at all. Like there are a lot of choices we can make and we, and it's up to us right now in this moment to make them. Katerina, how has it affected you and the conversations you're having? Yeah, I think it's a really important and wonderful conversation starter. I think in the scientific community, at least there are a lot of conversations we need to be having about what kind of work we're doing, and what is its purpose. So I work in the adaptation space right now. And with a comet, there's no adapting to the impacts of a comet. Everyone's smashed to smithereens. Inequality doesn't exist. It's beautiful, right? In the real world, we're already dealing with climate change, and we need to adapt. But the good news of that is that we have agency that communities are already getting together and deciding we're going to join forces together and we're going to implement some of these solutions locally. That makes me think of all of the ways that scientists can be redirecting about where's the power and agency coming from? How about we empower local communities to do the work and in addition, keep doing the awesome work that is engaging with policymakers. And there's so much work to be done on the ground to really center the marginalized groups as well. And so environmental justice is so key. And with adaptation comes the capacity to build up resilience, which is not, it's not going to be wasted that's how the scaling up can happen is when you get enough local communities with the will to mitigate, um, that will also enhance our capacity to stop all the fossil fuels mm -hmm. um, rather than just waiting for the higher ups and the elites to make the decisions. The second thing I think is in this film, it was really highlighted how public conversations can be difficult and can be um, derailed or can be successful sometimes. But we all are in relationships with so many different people. And so private conversations where you can build trust and build those community ties and then build the will to take climate action, there's just so much more possibility. Like we don't have to have stage fright with people that we trust and care about and care about us. So I just think there's just so much good news in that. Katerina Gonzalez and Mira Subramanian, thanks for coming on Climate One. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. What a great conversation. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the history of climate science. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, depressing, but it's also critical to address the climate emergency. Acting begins with talking. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review on Apple. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our audio editors are Aaron Abrocious and Austin Cologne. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.